0: Lecture 17, The Neural Bases of Working Memory. Welcome back. In the last two lectures, we've dived into working memory. We've seen its crucial importance to all higher thought and discussed some of the psychological mechanisms that are thought to underlie it. But of course, like all cognitive processes, Working memory is a function of the brain. Somehow, this three-pound mass of soft tissue inside your skull can store away information into working memory when necessary. It can rehearse and refresh that information to keep it active, and it can retrieve the information when it needs it to make a decision or to choose an action. How in the world does it do that? Is there a specific part of the brain that's devoted to working memory, much like the hippocampus is devoted to explicit memory? Is the distinction between phonological working memory and visuospatial working memory that we discussed last time reflected in brain organization? Are there specific neurons that fire when you're holding information in working memory and that don't fire when you're not? Those are the kinds of questions that we're going to talk about in this lecture. And let's begin in the early 1970s, when Joaquin Fuster and Garrett Alexander at UCLA made one of the first and most important discoveries about the neural basis of working memory. They were recording from neurons in a monkey's brain, while the animal performed what's called a delayed response task, specifically The monkey-watched experimenters put a piece of apple into one of two holes in front of the animal's cage. The holes were then covered, and a blind was lowered between the animal and the holes. Then there was a delay of anywhere from 15 seconds to a little over a minute. And after the delay, the blind was removed, which allowed the animal to reach out through its cage into one of the covered holes. Now, if it reached into the hole with the apple, then it got to eat the apple. If it reached into the other hole, then the experimenters showed the monkey where the apple really was, but they didn't let the animal have it. Now, monkeys are smart, and they quickly figured out the task and began consistently reaching into the hole containing the apple. Now, even though this task is simple, it very clearly requires working memory. First of all, the holes are covered, so the monkey can't see the apple. Furthermore, the experimenters moved the apple around randomly, so guessing wouldn't work. The monkeys had to store the location of the apple away in working memory. And on every trial, they had to hang on to that information across the delay. And that's exactly what they did. And while the monkeys were doing this, Fooster and Alexander were recording from neurons in their brain. And that's when they made a startling discovery. They found a bunch of neurons that fired continuously during the delay period, and then stopped firing after the animal made its response. Now, keep in mind, nothing was happening during the delay period. The blind was down, and the monkey couldn't even see the holes, much less the apple. And yet, Here were a bunch of neurons firing like crazy, so why were they firing? Well, Fuster and Alexander hypothesized that the activity in those neurons corresponded to the monkey's working memory of the apple's location. So, where were these neurons? They were in the prefrontal cortex, which you may remember from our last lecture. Recall that the cortex is the thin layer of gray matter around the outside of the brain, like the bark around the outside of a tree trunk. And as its name implies, the prefrontal cortex is the cortex in the front of the brain, above your eyes and behind your forehead. Fuster and Alexander's results suggested that the prefrontal cortex is critical for working memory, And that idea also makes sense, given what we talked about in our last lecture. Do you remember our discussion of the central executive component in Alan Baddeley's working memory model? This was the component that acts kind of like the CEO of a company, setting goals, monitoring progress, and delegating responsibilities. Likewise, the central executive component of working memory controls our attention and decides to keep some information active while letting other information fade away. And, do you remember what part of the brain was associated with the central executive? It was the prefrontal cortex. Recall that patients with damage to the prefrontal cortex often exhibit executive control deficits like distractibility and perseveration. So, according to Badley's theory, we should expect to see neural activity in the prefrontal cortex during working memory tasks. And sure enough, we do. Furthermore, subsequent research has begun to tease apart exactly what these prefrontal neurons do in more detail. One very important line of work was conducted by Patricia goldman rakic and her colleagues at Yale University. Like Fuster and Alexander, Goldman-Rikisha's team recorded from prefrontal neurons while monkeys performed a delayed response task. But instead of asking monkeys to remember which of two holes an apple was hidden in, they required the monkeys to remember the location where a visual stimulus, like a square, flashed on a screen. The square could appear in any of eight different locations. And just like in Fuster and Alexander's experiment, the monkey had to remember that location across a delay. Now, this task is a little harder, but the monkeys did eventually learn to do it quite well. And, like the Fuster study, goldman rakics team found a bunch of prefrontal neurons that fired vigorously during the delay. But they also found something new and interesting. Many of the neurons were location-specific, For example, one neuron was active whenever the monkey was trying to remember that the square had been in the upper right corner of the display. And a different neuron was active when the monkey was trying to remember that the square had been in the lower left. But the neural responses were consistent. The same neurons always fired when the monkey was remembering upper right, and a different set was always active when it was remembering lower left. In other words, These prefrontal neurons have very specific duties in spatial working memory. They don't all contribute to remembering all locations. Instead, each of them is responsible for remembering a specific location and doesn't actually participate in remembering other locations. And it turns out it's not just the prefrontal cortex that's involved in working memory. Subsequent experiments have demonstrated neural activity during the delay period in a number of more posterior parts of the brain. And the posterior brain area that is activated is typically the area that represents the kind of information being remembered. For example, we tend to represent spatial information in the parietal cortex, which is toward the top of the back half of the brain. Patients with damage to this part of the brain often exhibit a deficit called visuospatial neglect, in which they neglect or fail to pay attention to one side of space. They might not eat the food on the left side of their plate or read the text on the left side of a page, for instance. Now, clearly, the parietal cortex is crucial for representing the space around us. And it turns out, that when we store spatial information in working memory, neurons in that area of the brain are active during the delay. Likewise, when we perceive and represent color information, we tend to activate an area called V4, which is near the back and the bottom of the brain. And sure enough, animal studies have found that when monkeys are storing color information in working memory, neurons in the corresponding part of their brain are active. Now, based on these kinds of results, one popular hypothesis is that when we need to store information in working memory, we activate the very same brain regions that we normally use to represent that kind of information during perception. So, if we use area V4 to represent color during perception, then we use that same area to store color information in working memory. If we use parietal cortex to represent spatial information during perception, then we use that same area to store spatial information in working memory. And the same principle is thought to apply to auditory information, to linguistic information, and so on. We use the same brain areas to temporarily store information as we use to process that information. And that idea makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because it means we can use the same neural circuits to process the information in either case. For example, when you hear English words, you represent those words using patterns of activity in areas of the brain that are specialized for language. And the neurons in those regions trigger neural circuits associated with language comprehension to allow you to put the words together into a sentence and understand what it means. But now, suppose you store those words in working memory and hang on to them for 20 or 30 seconds. You obviously still want to be able to process and understand the sentence. And if you're using the same neurons to store the words as you used to represent them initially, then the same neural circuits you normally use for language comprehension can still be used. Conversely, if you had stored the words using a different population of neurons, then those neurons would trigger a completely different set of neural circuits. But you'd want those neural circuits to be able to perform language comprehension too. And so you might need two different neural circuits that both do language comprehension one that processes language in real time as it is perceived, and another that processes language that is stored in working memory. And I think we can agree that wouldn't be a very efficient arrangement. Okay. So far, we've found that working memory tends to activate areas in prefrontal cortex and also areas in posterior parts of the brain. And we've also found that the posterior brain regions used for working memory tend to be the same regions used to represent and process that information when it is directly perceived. But that raises a question. If the posterior regions used for working memory are different for different types of information, what about the prefrontal regions? Do they also depend on the type of information? Or are the prefrontal regions general purpose areas that play a role in working memory for any type of information? Another important question is whether these results found in animals apply to human beings. After all, monkeys may be smart, but hopefully we're just a little bit smarter. And our working memory abilities are also significantly better. So it's important to test whether the results found in monkeys apply to human beings as well. But how in the world can we do that? After all, we can't usually stick electrodes in human brains and record the activity of individual neurons. I don't think we'd get a lot of volunteers for that experiment. There is something we can do, however. Around 1990, scientists developed some methods for measuring human brain activity without having to crack open the skull. These so-called neuroimaging methods have absolutely revolutionized the study of the human mind and brain. And they've also revolutionized the study of the neural basis of working memory in human beings. Now, one of the first neuroimaging studies of working memory was conducted by my colleagues John Genetis and Ed Smith at the University of Michigan. They used a technique called positron emission tomography, or PET for short. Now, in a typical PET study, participants are injected with a very low dose of a radioactive tracer. The dose is low enough that it's very safe, but people aren't allowed to participate in a lot of PET studies for obvious reasons. Now, the radioactive tracer follows the blood supply wherever it goes, including into the brain. Furthermore, more blood gets sent to brain areas that are particularly active. And so more of the tracer goes to active brain areas than to brain areas that are inactive. And because the tracer is radioactive, it decays. And it leads to the emission of particles called positrons. The emission of those positrons can be detected by a special scanner that can determine where the positrons came from in the brain. And putting this all together, you can create a picture of brain activity based on positron emission. That's why it's called positron emission tomography. Now, using this technique, Janitas and Smith estimated brain activity while human participants performed two different working memory tasks. One task required people to remember verbal information, and the other task required people to remember spatial information. So by comparing the brain activity patterns in the two tasks, Janidis and Smith could identify the neural correlates of working memory in human beings. And they could also test whether remembering different kinds of information activates different regions, both in posterior areas and in the prefrontal cortex. Well, let's start with the verbal experiment. In this experiment, participants had to remember a random sequence of letters while their brain activity was measured using PET. Specifically, they had to perform what's called the two back task. As each new letter is presented, you have to say whether it matches the letter that was two back in the sequence. That is, does it match the letter that came before the previous letter? For example, If you see the letter A, and then you see the letter B, and then you see the letter A again, the second A matches the letter that was two back in the sequence, namely the first A. And so the correct answer would be yes, that's a match. But you're not done yet, because another letter will show up right after that. And for that letter, the letter two back in the sequence is actually B, not A. So now you're looking for a B and then another letter appears, and the letter two back in the sequence changes again. Now it would be the second A that you saw, and so on. Now I think you can see that this task puts a very heavy demand on verbal working memory. You have to constantly maintain the last two letters in your working memory. And with each new letter that you see, you have to update your working memory, discarding the letter that is now three back and remembering the two most recent letters instead. So, a bunch of people performed this task while they were in the PET scanner, and Janitas and Smith generated pictures of the brain activity to try to identify the regions involved in working memory in human beings. Sounds good, right? Well, there's actually a problem, though. That two-back letter task actually requires some cognitive processes other than working memory. For example, you have to perceive and recognize the letters. You also have to press a button indicating your response. And those low-level sensory and motor processes are obviously different than the processes involved in working memory per se. So how do you know if the brain activity that you observe is actually related to working memory and not one of these other processes? Well, to address that issue, Janidis and Smith also asked the participants to perform a task that was very similar to the two-back task, but that put far fewer demands on working memory. Specifically, they showed them a similar sequence of letters, but just asked them to indicate whether each letter was an M or not. So, no need to remember the last two letters, you just compare the current letter against an M and you say whether it matches or not. Now, obviously that task doesn't exercise working memory nearly as much as the two-back task does. But notice, it does still require perceiving and recognizing the letters. And it also requires pushing a button to indicate your response. So both tasks should engage these lower level sensory and motor mechanisms but only the two-back task places a significant demand on working memory. Janidis and Smith therefore subtracted brain activity during the control task from activity during the two-back task as a way to isolate brain activity that is specifically related to working memory. And what do you think they found when they did that? They found that verbal working memory activated an area in left prefrontal cortex and a posterior area in the left hemisphere that's commonly associated with language processing. And if you think about it, that's exactly what you would expect based on the animal studies. First of all, remember that animal studies often reported neural activity in prefrontal cortex while the animal was remembering information during a delay. Booster and Alexander found it when monkeys had to remember the location of a piece of apple. And goldman rakic and her colleagues found it when they had to remember where a visual stimulus had flashed on the screen. And just like those animal studies, Janitas and Smith also found prefrontal cortex activity that was specific to working memory. But they found it in human beings. Second, Recall that the animal studies found activity in posterior brain regions, but the specific region depended on the type of information being remembered. Remembering spatial information activated parietal regions involved in representing and processing space. And remembering color information activated visual areas associated with representing and processing color information. What about in the Janitas and Smith PET study? Those participants had to remember letters, which are verbal, linguistic information. And sure enough, the posterior areas that were active were regions associated with verbal, linguistic processing. In short, the results of this PET study suggest that the neural mechanisms underlying working memory in human beings share some important similarities with the mechanisms used by monkeys. But what about our other question? Are the prefrontal regions involved in working memory general purpose? Or are different areas of prefrontal cortex engaged when people have to hold on to different kinds of information? Well, to address that question, Janitas and Smith performed another PET study. But instead of holding on to verbal information, the participants had to try to remember spatial information. So here's how it worked. Just like the letter experiment, participants were shown a sequence of screens while they were lying in a PET scanner. And once again, they contrasted brain activity during a working memory task with brain activity during a matched task that doesn't require working memory. But in this case, people had to remember spatial information rather than verbal information, specifically Participants were briefly shown three dots on a screen, and then the dots went away. A few seconds later, an empty circle appeared, and the participants had to say whether one of the dots would have been inside that circle. So, just like the letter task, this task required working memory. People had to remember those three dots over a brief delay, but Rather than remembering verbal information about letters, in this case, they had to remember spatial information about the location of the three dots. And once again, Janidis and Smith also measured brain activity during a control task that had the same perceptual and motor requirements, but that didn't require working memory. Specifically, the task was the same, except that the dots and the circle were shown at the same time, So, you could use vision to decide if one of the dots was inside the circle. You didn't have to store the location of the dots in working memory. Well, then, Janitas and Smith subtracted the brain activation during the control task from the brain activity during the working memory task in order to isolate activity that was specific to working memory. In this case, specific to spatial working memory. So, what do you think they found? Well, once again, they found that working memory activated both prefrontal and posterior brain regions. And they also found that the posterior brain regions were areas associated with representing and processing spatial information. So, consistent with the animal studies, posterior brain areas involved in temporarily storing information were some of the same areas normally involved in representing and processing that same information. But what about the prefrontal activity? Did the spatial working memory task activate the same prefrontal region as the verbal working memory task? Or did it activate a different part of prefrontal cortex? It turns out that it activated a completely different part of prefrontal cortex compared with that verbal working memory task. In fact, it was on the other side of the brain entirely. The verbal working memory task activated the left prefrontal cortex while the spatial working memory task activated the right prefrontal cortex. And that has important implications for our understanding of what prefrontal cortex is doing during working memory. Apparently, there's not a single prefrontal region that performs exactly the same function regardless of what you're trying to store in working memory. Instead, different parts of prefrontal cortex participate in working memory for different types of information. So, what might these prefrontal regions be doing Well, one hypothesis that is gaining support is the idea that prefrontal cortex provides top-down excitation of posterior brain areas during working memory tasks. What do I mean by that? Well consider what happens when you perceive an orange nerve cells in your eyes send signals into the brain that cause other nerve cells to fire and those cells cause still other cells to fire and so on so the neural activity is driven by a stimulus coming from outside that's often called bottom-up processing but what if you're not perceiving an orange anymore What if you're just temporarily storing the image of an orange that you saw recently, but that was taken out of view? So now the nerve cells in your eyes are not sending signals back into the brain and driving a pattern of neural activity that corresponds to your representation of that orange. What's going to drive the neural activity and keep it active even when you can no longer see the orange? Well, one natural possibility is that that's what prefrontal cortex does. It drives the neural activity in posterior brain areas and keeps them active, even though there's nothing coming in from perception. And when neural activity is driven internally rather than being driven by external stimuli, that's typically called top-down processing. So that's what it means to say that prefrontal cortex provides top-down excitation of posterior brain regions during working memory tasks. And that hypothesis also makes sense of the finding that different regions of prefrontal cortex are involved in working memory for different kinds of information. You see, different parts of prefrontal cortex are connected to different parts of posterior cortex. Areas near the top of prefrontal cortex tend to be connected to areas near the top of posterior cortex, while areas near the bottom are connected to areas near the bottom. Likewise, prefrontal cortex in the left hemisphere tends to be connected to posterior regions in the left, while prefrontal cortex on the right tends to be connected to posterior regions on the right. And obviously, If a prefrontal region is going to provide top-down excitation of a posterior region, then it needs to be connected to it. So that explains why different parts of prefrontal cortex would be activated when you're storing different types of information. The information is actually being stored in posterior cortex, in the very area that tends to represent and process that information during normal perception. Since there's a specific part of prefrontal cortex that's connected to that part of posterior cortex, that's the region that would provide top-down excitation for it. Okay, now that we've reviewed some of what we know about the neural mechanisms underlying working memory, I'd like to raise one final question. How does all this relate to the psychological models of working memory that we talked about in our last lecture? Specifically, do you remember Alan Badley's model which assumed that working memory could be subdivided into different components? He argued that we should distinguish a phonological loop from a visuospatial buffer, and that both of those were controlled by a central executive. Well, if you think about it, that model actually maps pretty naturally onto the neural results that we've discussed in this lecture. For example, Genita and Smith found that storing verbal information depends on completely different brain circuits than storing spatial information. And that makes perfect sense, assuming that we use the phonological loop to store verbal information while we use the visuospatial sketch pad to store spatial information. Furthermore, a natural interpretation of the neural data is that prefrontal cortex provides top-down excitation of posterior brain areas. Well, that seems a lot like the top-down control that you would expect Badley's central executive to exert. And as we pointed out in our last lecture, Badley actually assumes that the central executive component of working memory is implemented in prefrontal cortex. So the mapping between psychology and neuroscience certainly isn't completely understood yet. But it seems like the two fields are beginning to converge, which scientists like me find very exciting. Okay, let's finish up. We've now spent three lectures discussing the mechanisms underlying working memory, both at a psychological level and now at a neural level. Understanding working memory is one thing, but is there anything we can do to improve it? After all, as we've seen, people with good working memories tend to do better on a wide range of tasks. Working memory is even hypothesized to play a central role in what makes someone intelligent. Unfortunately, working memory is also one of the cognitive functions that tends to decline as we get older. So if we could find a way to boost working memory in some way, that could have a truly dramatic impact on people's lives. Well, as you might imagine, given the importance of the question, working memory training is a very hot research topic at the moment. And like many hot research topics, it's also very controversial. And next time, we'll get into that controversy and talk about what scientists have learned as they try to increase working memory capacity. See you then.